0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, we speak with Kelsey Osgood. Kelsey is a Geert Tzedek, a convert to Judaism, who is also a prolific author. She's written extensively on Judaism and topics of religion, as well as more general areas of interest. She's also a survivor of childhood anorexia, which she wrote a full-length book about. And in general, just has a wonderful story. Meanwhile, a reminder that sponsorships and dedications are available honor someone celebrate their birthday memorialize a loved one from the past send an email to jews you should know at gmail.com jews you should know at gmail.com follow us on social media at jews you should know spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram jews you should know with the letter U on Twitter please remember to subscribe wherever you are listening whether that's Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts SoundCloud Spotify Stitcher wherever it may be let your friends and family know to do so as well it helps us grow Jews, you should know. And now to our conversation with Kelsey Osgood. We are here with Kelsey Osgood, a fabulous writer and speaker and person with tremendous life story. actually had not heard of Kelsey at all until she appeared on 1840 podcast, which is hosted by my friend Rabbi Dovid Beshevkin. I recommend that podcast to uh, all my listeners as well. And once I got to look into her and heard her story, I found, like I said, this fabulous writer, incredibly articulate woman with a really, a really interesting life story. So I reached out to Dovid and I said, hey, can you make the introduction, which he graciously did. And here we are. So how are you, Kelsey? I'm doing well, thank God. yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I love people who are articulate and uh, write well. My personal degree is in writing. I have a master's in nonfiction, creative nonfiction, which people always wonder what that actually is.
1: I uh, have the same thing, so oh, there we go. We're in it's, the same boat.
0: The difference is that you write for things like The New Yorker and so forth, and I write well-crafted emails. so
1: <laughs> there's nothing if I could only do that I would there's nothing. <laughs> There's nothing more pleasurable than a good correspondence, in my opinion.
0: (laughs) There we go. Very, very generous of you. So anyway, Kelsey, take us from the top. Uh, You have a really interesting story. Um, It touches on a lot of unique themes and also ties into some things you're doing today. But Mm -hmm. bring us back to the beginning, in the beginning, as we say, in Judaism. Where did it all start?
1: Feel free to jump in if I'm giving too much detail. So I was born and raised in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I was born in the mid 80s. So I'm a a child of the 90s, specifically in a town called Darien, which is, um, I mean, Fairfield County in general is like this, but Darien in particular is sort of what you would think of as kind of the quintessential Connecticut waspy suburb. It's very pretty. There are lots of country clubs. There are big yards, golden retrievers, summering in Nantucket, that kind of thing. It's a nice place, it's a pretty place. It's very, very homogeneous, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, in, in every way you can imagine. I don't know for sure, but I think it's a, maybe a little bit more diverse than when I was a kid, but not that much. I have two younger brothers. My parents are from the Midwest. That didn't make them outcasts or anything, but you know, they're not technically wasps, but, um, but no, they fit. You know, they play tennis and golf, and my family is not religiously. Oriented, when you know, I think when I was a kid, they probably would have called themselves like Christmas and Easter Protestants at best.
0: Americans, I think. We
1: know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like American Christians, like celebrated Christmas with no mention of Jesus. This kind of thing, very, very secular. You know, when I got older, then I realized that that actually was more in lines of like atheism, agnosticism. But even in the mid eighties, early nineties, I think that's just not, and especially in a in an area where people didn't weren't overtly religious generally, and and certainly didn't talk about those kinds of things, um, that was not something that they were very forward about. Within my family system, and maybe within the town of Darien, this is certainly how I saw myself as a child. Now, whether or not that's true, I'm not really sure, because of course I'm not privy to everybody's private thoughts. But um, I was very preoccupied with questions of meaning and existence. Why are we here? What does it all mean? Things about moral relativity. What are good and bad? Does some individual determine what's good and what's bad? Or is there like a larger ethical structure? Who is God? What does God want from us? This kind of stuff was very, very much on my mind. You know, I was little, so I, I don't remember whether I made that clear to the people around me or I absorbed some sort of waspy unspoken messages that like, these are not the things that you talk about in company with, you know, like in front of other people. I don't recall talking about it a lot. I might be wrong because I was young. I don't, you know, a lot of us don't remember the things that happened when we were young.
0: You think you were unique in this respect, like it wasn't something others were doing?
1: Certainly when I was a teenager and I looked back on it, I thought of it as unique. I was like, I was very unique. (laughs) But I'm resistant to that characterization of myself now for a number of reasons. One, because I can't really be sure, you know, when you're six or seven years old, how do you know what adults are thinking about in their private time, what they speak about with themselves? Obviously, an adult is not going to be walking around talking to a child necessarily about the meaning of life all the time, you know? I'm not sure whether I made it clear to other people that this that these were things that were really you questions that really dogged me, that really followed me around. I'm not sure. I might have just kept it to myself. So I hesitate to say that I was unique.
0: Is there anything that you could point to that you think precipitated this kind of questioning or was it just sort of your natural no, posture? I,
1: I can't remember anything that would and my parents aren't like they're the, they would be the first ones to tell you they're not like that. They don't, you know, they're they're um multifaceted people who have lots of interests and but but they don't they're not they don't have the existential obsession that I did. That's sort of when I look back at my young years. That's, that's what I think of as me sitting around and thinking about stuff like this.
0: Those, those Connecticut suburbs have some very Jewish areas you talk about. So Westin they do in Fairfield and
1: sure. So my husband is from Westport, which is, I think he told me when we first started dating something like 30% Jewish there's, and I, not to jump ahead, but when um, I went to high school in Westport at, at a private school and there were, more Jewish kids at the private school that I went to than I had ever met before in my life. There was one girl in my class in the fourth grade who was Jewish, who was the only Jewish kid in our grade. So I don't know, something of a hundred kids, maybe there was one. And I remember our fourth grade teacher structured a whole lesson plan about Judaism, specifically around this girl to say like, okay, well now it's Rosh Hashanah. She was probably thinking her, you know, like these poor shelter children who've never met a minority in their life. Like I'm going to show them what a minority culture looks like. And I'm going to use this girl as an example. And I remember being in fourth grade and thinking like, is this really embarrassing for her? Or is it really nice to be like seen and, you know, pointed out? And I don't, we don't keep it up. So I have no idea, but, um, a lot of my early life was kind of like, Looking for the answers to these questions in really um awkward ways, sort of biggest I had like some big role models, I guess you, or people whose worldviews spoke to me. one who was my maternal grandfather, who was a very ardent atheist and a very not a happy guy, a very smart guy, but not a very happy one. That wasn't something that I really picked up on when I was a kid, but the big joke was that he used to, my mom would come home from school and find him, having invited the Jehovah's Witness missionaries into the house so that he could debate with them for
0: Some fun. Sparring,
1: <laughs> Exactly. And he used to do it with other family members of ours, getting families, you know, we had a, a big extended family. So there were a few here and there, there were people who were more religious and he would argue with them in a very sort of combative way. He probably didn't see it that way, but... Um,
0: was he very scientistic in his orientation?
1: He, yeah. I mean, he had learned... The big joke was that he learned what his IQ was in college. And it was when he was in college, and it was just over the genius level. And he never let anybody forget it. And he was a successful guy. He was a dentist by practice, but he was also like... He's also like a very famous fly fisherman. He sort of changed the world of, of fly fishing. I couldn't really explain to you how he did that because I'm not a fly fisher wow, person. Okay. But um,
0: what what's what was his name? Carl Richards. Carl Richards, the fly yeah. fisherman. Okay. Yeah,
1: exactly. You can you know go ahead and Google the Richards'
0: that. method of fly. Knock,
1: fishing. knock yourself out. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but he was a very smart person, and I admired intellect when I was little, and, and I. Um, at one point, which I'll get to, like sort of modeled myself, I thought, okay, I'm going to follow in this, you know, hardened, um, logical, in the mode of this, this hard, logical man, I'm going to be like, like that. The other one was I had a babysitter when I was a little kid who was well, she was my babysitter from when I was born until I was probably 12 or 13. And she grew up in Dublin in the 40s, uh, like true Angela's Ashes style childhood, 12 siblings, you know, parents in and out, drunkenly stumbling out all the time. Like every Irish Catholic cliche you want to <laughs> throw out there, she hit it. And she was Catholic, but in a way that, like, I mean, I'm not sure that she could have even separated how much of that was cultural and how much of that was religious but she used to take me to mass all the time. And so I would go to to Catholic mass when I was a little kid and it was around the corner from my house and you would bring your stuffed animals and the, the priest would bless them. And, and I was really into this, the, the, the ritual of it. Apparently I was really, I really liked it a lot. My parents were sort of horrified by this, but they didn't really let on that they were horrified. And I don't remember this happening because I was young, but, after i was told that what happened was when i was about eight we went to a mass and it was the practice mass for the other kids the kids who were going to be getting their first catechism so they were doing like a dry run and they were my age and i guess it somehow must have occurred to me that like oh these kids are going to be initiated into this tradition that i am not a part of and i told my babysitter I don't belong here. We need to leave right now. She did it. I don't know why. I mean, I was late. She didn't have to listen to me, but I don't remember that. But I do remember that after that, there was this very kind of painful rupture where I all of a sudden said, there must not be a God. This must be part of these things that adults say to children to keep us behaving a certain way. I was also very big into like school. I really didn't like school and I thought it was
0: all just a plot to keep us. That was pretty Marxist.
1: I know, right? It was advanced and wayward <laughs> at the same time. But uh, I was a little bit lazy. I didn't want to do, you know, I just wanted to watch TV all the time and like play. Um, Who doesn't? Yeah. yeah, right. Even now I feel that way. Exactly. Um, and that was like the beginning of my like real atheist phase. I do remember that very distinctly. I remember feeling like something about having lifted the veil from my eyes put me ahead of my friends and made me this kind of independent rogue agent. But I also remember, I mean in a th- in a way that I think was like I I kind of I think I sort of realized it as it was happening even um feel really Alone, and you know, I mean, feeling like I get okay. So we're just alone (laughs) in the universe, and you know, if you think about moral relativity really deeply, that's a that's pretty terrifying concept.
0: Right. I was going to ask you if this connects back to your your sense of your question about moral relativism, because if there is no larger objective ethical construct, then essentially, I mean, at its at its core, like you're saying anything really goes, you know, even, even if you're a humanist, but from a pure logical standpoint, at least the way I understand, you know, the way I think about it, there's no category of of good or evil. There's nothing, there's no way to judge those categories.
1: Right. And even if you devote yourself to like, you know, classical existentialism and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to create my own meaning and I'm going to create meaning that's good. You know, even people who are not religious can determine obvious good, not murdering people and not. But there's still something about that that's so tenuous. You know, once you, once you stray away from the really obvious don't murder, don't steal, don't burn down people's homes or whatever, and once you get into the really gray areas of, of interpersonal rea- interaction and stuff like that, then it gets really, you know, that's, that's it's scary. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, I, I would say even at the most basic level, even at that murder level, you still have a degree of, I mean, it's still purely subjective in a certain sense you know, even even if you believe in universal morality, the question is still where, where that comes from, you know, and if you don't have that, you know, how could you possibly judge the, you know, the alternatives? Um, part of what's compelling to me about religious structures is that people have this profound impulse that these things are categorically good and bad, not just that they're constructed or some kind of social contract in that regard, that there's something like wrong inherently and inherently and intuitively about murder, for example. Yeah. And why should that be? I mean, I could say it's, it's wrong or it's harmful in a societal sense, but how can I say it's bad in the moral sense, unless I'm subscribed to some greater moral category. But anyway. Right. <laughs> I digress. Right. Yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> totally. So that started around, right around eight. That was a big part of my identity until sort of midway through college. Yeah, like so. Like I was saying, I I think I did realize that I was kind of floating. Now I'm just floating in space, and you know, it's not even like I felt okay. I'm I'm not necessarily protected or anything. I didn't think, oh, once there was a god watching over me, and now there isn't, because I always remember that being a bit difficult to connect with as a little kid. Thinking, okay, there's a higher being who cares about me, and I did learn this. My parents would send, you know, they would. We went to a Protestant preschool, and we had like. Once or twice would have like y things. They, I think they did it the same way that a lot of people engage with their religious past, like by virtue of habit or to appease their own parents or whatever.
0: Um, Switch their so, own guilt.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I knew what was what I was supposed to feel, but that was always a hard thing to like feel in, in and you know on a bone deep level. The next major part of my journey, if you will, sounds like a you know like a cheesy self help word is I became at the age of 13, 14, is when I started developing anorexia. The origin stories of my anorexia are slightly different than what, than what a lot of people who have had eating of say in that I was very conscious of the fact that this is what I was doing. I was like, I don't have anything to be. There was, it was very identity. I don't have anything to be. I don't have any structure to my life. Um, There's no anchor and- I have no anchor, and i'm a thirteen year old girl all thirteen year old girls want to be skinny or want to lose weight and I had always felt I was never an outcast I was never bullied I wouldn't want to make the story about that, but I always kind of felt like just enough outside of of like the main girl culture, I guess that I felt like this was this was something that would also kind of put me firmer towards the middle this is the stuff that thir- i was like this is the stuff that 13 year old girls are supposed to be worried about they're supposed right. to be worried about being too big they're not necessarily supposed to be worrying about like what life means you right. know it was like pedestrian in We're a way
0: in a certain way right? yeah
1: yeah yeah so and you know a lot of things have been written about about the ways in which anorexia can really mimic religious
0: structure do you feel like this was an attempt to assert control in a world that you felt was not anchored in any locus of control.
1: So yes, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, control is is like a buzzword that people use around anorexia a lot. And um, maybe I sometimes like resist the buzzword stuff. So when I hear it, I'm kind of like, oh, it reminds me of like being in therapy in 2001.
0: It's funny, yeah. you said my I was just I was talking just a minute like, a few minutes ago at the dinner table with my with my daughter who's a teenager? I was what telling her about this upcoming <laughs> interview and I told mm-hmm. her, you know, a little bit about your story, the little the little that I knew or know. And she said, Oh, I watched the TED talk about anorexia. Mm-hmm. And he said, Isn't it about asserting control? So there you go. Sure. Yeah, got-
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's> so, <all. laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not wrong. It is. But for me, I think there was also a bit of, You know, I don't want to generalize. I've met many, many other people with eating disorders over the course of being in treatment. Everybody had a different story and everybody had a different entry point. So mine isn't isn't necessarily everyone's. But I did meet a lot of people who came from families where they were maybe like restricted or the families were very strict or the parenting relationships were very enmeshed. For me, it was really quite the opposite. My parents were very hands-off as I said before, I was a very lazy student. So there were a lot of areas in school where I just did not do that well at, but I could kind of get by without doing a lot of work. They didn't come from very like a very intense academic background. So they were like, I was precocious when I was a little kid, little, little. So I think they had always said to me, we just thought we didn't have to worry about you. You could just take care of yourself. And I think that rather than it being me trying to, it was sort of I is that, call sex- for a, is that a
0: call for attention?
1: A little bit, yeah. I wanted them to make decisions for me. I didn't want to be in charge. I felt like I was kind of in charge of my life and I, I didn't want that. That was a really clumsy way of expressing that.
0: So actually, instead of you asserting control over yourself, it was actually a cry for others to impose control onto you.
1: A little bit. And I think that that's... That's probably not a totally, a rare thing amongst anorexics. I think some of them would say that both, that both things are true, that they felt like, you know, out of control or they're part of dysfunctional family systems where they wanted to narrow their focus down. But, but I do think that that is something that many w- might relate to is this idea that I want someone to help me. I don't feel right. And, but I don't know how to say that. I don't have the language to explain that. And I didn't have this language. I had the, I did have some language of spirituality because I do think that a lot of this came from that lack, that lack of understanding of what it means to be human and how, what it means to be alive. And am I supposed to be afraid of that? Am I supposed to be just feeling like those things were too big? And how do I make everything a lot smaller and more manageable and more concrete? And I do it in this way that in you know that really makes the focus something that's very banal. Really, I mean, food and weight and all this stuff is very dull in a lot of ways. And um, and yeah, so that's that's what I did.
0: So You struggled with this throughout high school. When when were you able to get some s- support?
1: Yeah. So this was so I got sick when I was thirteen, and I was kind of struggled too because it's hard for myself to understand whether my teens. Up until my mid twenties, was was mostly wellness with pockets of illness, or mostly illness with pockets of wellness. You know, like it's hard for me to to know. I had help throughout. I was hospitalized four times when I was fifteen, twice my freshman year of college, and then once again early in my junior year of college. Most of the time, when I came out of the hospital, then I would be okay, and I would get be. Uh, you know, I would be stable. And then sometimes I would think, okay, I'm totally, this is like done. I'm fine. I'm better. I don't have, you know, issues this. anymore. Yeah. Then for whatever reason, I mean, going into college was a major, was a major bump. That Where
0: was did you go to college? I went to Columbia. Went to Columbia. So you obviously had the academic credentials, even throughout all these times being hospitalized and struggling, you were able to maintain a certain level of academic excellence to get into an Ivy league school. Yeah, I mean, I know unless that people- there's an, unless there's a family building. <laughs> no, there's no family In a, building. One hundred sixteenth Street, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. I
1: mean, no. I remember my dad told me at the co- at the time one of his colleagues was like, "How did one of your kids get into Columbia?" But yeah, <laughs> I I'm sure this is a very cliche answer to that. But but it felt like a fluke. It still kind of feels like a fluke. That's but that's what happened. I went to Columbia. By that point, I had been out of the hospital and like feeling pretty okay for two and a half years or so. So I really thought, you know, I'm fine. And then when I went to college, the same sort of thing happened as when I had switched to private school. So that's my first
0: transition points.
1: It's that transition point. And it's for me, I think it has a lot to do with like, or it had a lot to do with like, who am I in this new space and feeling like that everybody around me sort of has been given a guidebook to what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to behave and me feeling like i'm a little bit behind and i always i mean i said this already and i want to just stress it again like i didn't there was no external feedback that was like that it really just kind of came from inside and that's the sort of thing when you get older and you kind of wish you could talk to your younger self and be like no one else knows what they're doing I'm right. right it's like, all it's all a facade yeah. um <laughs> So You're just I the only am, one honest
0: enough to actually be anxious about it. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. So I went to college and really had not been there that long. It was kind of unconscious, and then once I realized what was happening, I was like, I don't even have to do any of this. I can just retreat back into this old thing that I used to do, and I don't have like that. Can be I know that I know that I know the world, and I know I know that headspace, and, and I don't have to, you know, be anxious about how to socialize and how to like find out what classes I'm supposed to be taking and find my direction in life or whatever. So I managed to make it through my first semester by the true skin of my teeth. And then the second that I got home, went to a hospital program in Long Island. And the hospital there was one that was right on the border of Queens and Long Island. And they had a large... Religious
0: Jewish population. Was it LIJ? Yeah. That's where I was born, just for Ah. fact. (laughs) A few years before you were in college, that was 1978. So you were there, it sounds like, in the 90s. This was 2002, 2002,
1: 2003, um, like right over the New Year's holiday. So I had NIP. No, I went to Columbia. There are are lots of Jews at Columbia, but I wasn't wasn't paying attention my first semester. I really was like in, in my own world. And this was really my first interaction. I might not have even known that it was possible to be that religious period as a member of any faith. I felt like the height of religiosity was like my catholic neighbor or like my nanny who like went to mass in a perfunctory way because that was part of her background. I didn't know that it was possible to live in a way where religion like permeated every aspect of your life and I was very confused and very and fascinated i mean i'll admit that and i became close with one person in particular who was there who was from a, an observant family here in brooklyn where i live not in the same but in, but in brooklyn and um yeah that was my first like my first real introduction and these were people on the eating
0: disorder ward
1: so lij didn't have an eating disorder specific ward you were on um there was like a special program that you were with other eating disorders patients, but the ward itself was a general um, pediatric
0: medical ward.
1: But yes, these kids were all in the eating
0: disorders program. What's fascinating is that you saw them as sort of a source of intrigue even though they were also struggling with the exact same maladies that you were. So it wasn't like they had quote unquote the answers.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. It doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I've I've thought about this before and I'm not exactly sure. But I mean, I think I remember at the time sort of thinking to myself, like, why would you need this if you have that? That was my thought. Like, why you know, I knew by that point I had been through a lot of therapy, I had read a lot, like I knew. In addition to just being anorexic too much, I probably just thought about anorexia too much. It was not, you know, I needed like some distractions. But I knew at least part of my motivation came from wanting, I don't know, wanting a religion, I guess, and wanting a sort of life path, capital L, capital P. Like anorexia has a lot of, like I said, a lot of those same things that religion does that religion does. It has ritual, it has clear binaries of good and bad and pure and defiled, it it can provide your life with like really minute structure over the course of the day and over the course of just your life. It has like a, a higher power that you worship. It has its own literature. It has its own culture. It has, if you wanted it at the time in the early 2000s, it had community because the internet was full of Places where you could go and talk to other people who were like you. Cat rooms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I was like, "Well, gosh, I mean, if you already have that, why do you need this?" I mean, that's not. And nice. yet, that, that was- yeah, that
0: wasn't invalidating for you. It's just fascinating.
1: It wasn't, and yeah, I suppose that's a that's a thing that I've never really been able to truly unpack. And the closest I've ever gotten is to say that I realized that people. And Jews are complicated, and not all Jews come from perfect family systems, lives without trauma. And there's a lot of reasons to want an outlet that is unhealthy. That's something that transcends religion and ethnicity and class and all that stuff. So,
0: sure. So you were attracted to these these people in this program, and I guess did you start to like learn about Judaism? Be like, hey, why don't I check this out?
1: So. I did a little bit and not in a serious way, but I did a little bit. I also had a close friend in college who came from a modern Orthodox background in Westchester. She studied abroad in, in Israel. And so I went to visit her when she was studying there. It was a pretty, you know, it was an attraction and it remained that way from, gosh, that's like eight years or so. And it was a kind of like, like. The auntie was upped a little bit every time. When I was 24 or 25, I was dating a guy at the time and I lived in Miami, which is a tangent. It's a different story, but um, I lived in Miami for work and I was dating a guy and we were walking through Miami and there was an open door of synagogue or, you know, somewhere where men were davening. And this guy came from a a nice evangelical background, <laughs> you know, not, I mean, not nice, but um, uh, maybe they were sort of open Protestants or something you would, you would say that they, a Christian background and from um, small towns. And I don't think he knew much about, about Judaism. And I had, you know, I, I think they were studying something, the men or they were dominating, I don't remember. It's, it was a while ago. And I remember trying to explain to him what I thought was happening in the room. And he said, what would they do if you just ran in there? And I said, I would never do that. I was like, I would, I would never ever do that. And I remember thinking at the time that that was a weird reaction on my part because, as a preteen, I used to really relish really in telling people that I didn't have to. You know, it was like Bill Maher, or whatever. I don't have to like observe these silly regulations made up by people to make themselves feel better about their lives. And there was this like. Thing where I was like, no, my reverence does not. Wouldn't I would never touch that? You know, like I I wouldn't. Although it
0: was like too sacred in a certain way.
1: Yeah, I was like, I, I would never disrespect them that way. Oh, just to backtrack a little bit. When I was my last therapist, when I was in college, was she didn't tell me that much about her life. Like, she told me a little more than a therapist is supposed to. But I knew she was Christian. <laughs> I had been with her for a number of years, and I was telling her i had gotten into some conversation with a taxi driver who was trying to argue with me about there being one God or whatever. And I was telling my therapist something about how I had gone to a philosophical argument with him about like Hinduism and like, I don't remember the contours of the argument, but I said, well, it was just philosophy. It's not like I believe in God. And then I said to her, Oh my gosh, like, I believe in God. (laughs) And she, she was like, yeah, you do. She like, like she had been listening to me for years and it was like, that's, it was, it's been obvious to me for a long time that you do. So.
0: Was your grandfather still alive at any of this point? That's a great question.
1: He was alive. He was, he died probably a year or two years after that. But you know, my family, they lived in Michigan. We didn't see them that often. And he wasn't a very happy guy. I didn't really. I saw him when I saw him, and I rarely talked to him outside of that. At that point in his life, he was a bit of a misanthrope. He spent a lot of a lot of the time at family gatherings, like in his car, smoking because that's the only place that anybody nobody would let him smoke inside. So he would just sit in his car and listen to Rush Limbaugh and smoke cigarettes. And
0: was he was conservative, which is interesting.
1: He was conservative, yeah. And at that point. I had really rejected that brand of, even if I hadn't really understood that I was moving towards a more concrete spirituality, or I had rejected his his brand of agnosticism because I felt that it was part of, um, it did unpleasant things to certain people's egos, to his ego. I saw what that, you know, what that did to him. And I'm not trying to imply that people cannot be agnostic and, and also be good and humanist and whatever. They, they absolutely can. But For me, watching someone in my life, you know, allow that to make him really lonely and mean and miserable.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, not to psychoanalyze too much, but I wonder if your early paradigm of agnosticism or Dryden atheism, being someone who was so unhappy made you sort of associate non-belief with unhappiness and sort of maybe there's a deep impulse to attain happiness, which was embodied by the opposite of that.
1: Yeah. I definitely think there's something to that. So after my initial like interactions with Judaism in college, and then right after that, just in sort of bits and pieces, I have like a few friends from my hospital days, but not many of them. And one of them is a friend who grew up in Brooklyn. And I remember I like went to her house for a Shabbos lunch in college, like a year or two after we were in the hospital together. And her family, I mean, they must, looking back on it, they must have thought, that I was pretty dumb because I, I mean, I showed up there like in the middle of a Saturday, I had no idea what was going on. They were like, yeah, come to lunch, you know, and I had a big like nose ring at the time and I was wearing jeans. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but they were very gracious and they invited me in and I was like, what is happening here? And Did you have some cholent at least. I think I did. I, ha- I think that was the first time I had to <laughs> built a fish, really. And also then was like, what is going on
0: here? But um, <laughs> They don't make that in uh, in WASPy, Connecticut suburbs.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. They make like, you know, drinks, I think. Um, right. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. So then over the next couple of years, I really like, I picked up things in bits and pieces. I kind of, very embarrassing ways, you know, if I was on the subway and I saw somebody who was like visibly Jewish, I would sort of try to see what they were reading. I mean, I, can't, I couldn't understand it. It was like hieroglyphics to me or whatever. But it was an attraction that I was also like, this is very strange. And again, I come from a bit like, my background is such that you don't really show up at the party unless you're invited, you know? So I, I never was going to, I never like inserted myself into any situations. And um, then I started dating my now husband who is from Westport, who is Jewish by birth and who comes from a reformed family, very strong, very strongly affiliated.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And his parents are very involved Jews. They were, they gave him a really strong Jewish identity and we started dating. And then we had been dating like a, probably a little bit less than a year. And I was going to go to my first Seder. And one of my friends from college, the one who studied abroad in Israel said, well, if you need to know what you're doing, you can come to, a, I'm going to go to the the local Chabad where she lived in Brooklyn. And we're going to, you know, they're going to do like a pre-Passover class. So I went there and I did this Passover class and I went to the Seder and I liked it. And I, then I was going to, my now husband's grandfather was alive at the time and he was well into his 90s at that point, but very active guy and also had been very active in his synagogue until really until like the end of his life. One thing led to another. And then I started to thinking about conversion. But of course, because I am the way that I am, this had to be very tortured, very drawn out, and very long. <laughs>
0: well that's the way conversion's supposed to be anyway. So it's it's a good match, right?
1: <laughs> I know. I do feel I do feel like it's fitting in some way. So, you know, I when I first started considering it, I did when I first started learning, I would go back to the same chabad rabbi that taught this Passover class, and I went to his house once a week. He took me in for free, did not ask anything, and just learned with me a little bit. For I mean, it had to be a year, two years, maybe. I'm trying to think. And I was doing this. I was like, okay, well, my husband's family are very strong in their Jewish practice. So if my if we get married, then it will be my responsibility to at least pass some of this along to our kids. And I should say that to my, my in-laws, there was no discussion of this from their side of the family. There was no Kelsey should really learn about Judaism. Kelsey should convert. They are true reformed Jews. They believe in patrilineal descent. There was no pressure on me to be like the mother of Jewish children or whatever. I mean, maybe they thought it, but I never heard of anything like it um, on my end. So so that was my initial thought. I'm going to do this. And it was also a little bit like, oh, well, this is great. This is something that I've always been in, that I've been interested in for coming up on 10 years now anyway. So now I have an excuse to fulfill it. Now I can go into these spaces and not feel like an interloper and not feel like I'm crashing somebody's party. I'll have a reason when people say, why are you here? I can say, I can explain, but there were two problems with this. The first problem was that I had concerns within myself that when I was a teenager, what I wanted from anorexia were, I was worried that the reason that I was attracted to religion was the similar um,
0: emotional band aid or of sorts.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or another way to give my life defined meaning that would help me survive, ironically, considering the earlier attempt at this. I spent a lot of time like asking myself, okay, is the problem that the previous attempts to do that were bad, or is the problem the need itself? Like, should I be trying to root out that part of me that wants that? And I thought about this a lot. And I mean, if you want to know the honesty, I- I'm still not entirely sure of the answer. I- Where I landed on for myself was that like, I can be an overthinker. I was like, you might just think about this for the rest of your life, and you are- might never know the answer for real. And one thing that I talked about that David Byshevkin and I talked about quite a bit is this William Jamesian idea that from varieties of religious experience that basically the proof is in the pudding, it, that if, you're, if you commit yourself to a certain life and you sort of orient yourself in that direction and it, it makes you a better person, it makes you a happier person, and it, what he talks about the fruits, the fruits are good, that might be the, the only certainty that you can have. So that was the one problem. So I sat with that and thought about that a lot. And then the other problem was that I was really just more attracted to Orthodox culture and levels of observance than I was to certainly the, 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 the reform movement, which was lovely. And it was a, it was a I had um, really meaningful experiences going to my husband's grandfather's place of worship. But as time went on, when I sought out teachers and mentors and religious experiences, it was consistently in that direction. So sometimes, you know, when people who aren't really as familiar with spectrum of Jewish culture and belief will say, oh, well, you obviously you converted so that you could get married. I have to be like, well, you know, I totally see why you would think that. But let me just assure you that that is not a frictionless (laughs) situation to be in. That was something that was really, that was tough. And at the time I had started writing and publishing more, I would work on things that were a lot of things that were about Orthodox communities or Hasidic communities here in Brooklyn. I would do a lot of reporting in those environments. This was all kind of a means of just being there, being with people experiencing Shabbat, which is kind of, you know, for me is sort of the apex of, of Jewish life. And that was, I mean, I think one of the major things that really made me unable to fully divest myself of, of the desire to be Orthodox was that I was, this is where they, you know, they do that. So well. how
0: did your then boyfriend uh, deal with this? Uh,
1: origin I mean, the first time this came up, it did not go well. <laughs> I ignored it for a while. We went to see, you know, I went to see, I tried to pursue other options. Those didn't, for various reasons, did not go very well. I must have looked like Goldilocks. No, this is not, this is not for me. This person's not for me. And eventually one day he was kind of like, well, what are you doing? Why are you, are you like wasting your time? And I had to say, you know what? I think I've, I've thought about it and I just, I think I have to go this route. And it was, it was a big fight. I mean, it was a big fight. There was a lot of crying and I'm not going to repeat any of the words that were said. At that point, we've been dating for a long time at that point. So I don't, didn't think that he was, we didn't, we, and we were very, our relationship was very strong and he's a very serious person. And so he, I didn't think he was going to break up. We didn't, I didn't think our relationship was going to be over as a result of it, but he was kind of like, okay, well, if this is what you want to do, like it's your life and I'm going to do my thing. And and I really thought that we would have what looked like, you know, like an interfaith marriage almost, you know, that I would make Shabbat. And if we had kids, we would have it together. And then he would wake up the next morning and he's a lawyer. So go to work on a Saturday. Or I thought that that's what it would look like for a long time. It took me, and then it also took me a while to find like, You know, the right quote unquote right rabbi, and I kept Shabbat by we look we looked this up the other day out of curiosity. I kept Shabbat for over a year alone because he wasn't then even pre observance rising, he was never dismissive or angry or bitter. He hadn't, he never had any
0: bitterness, just hadn't grown up with it.
1: He hadn't grown up, with he, he had always said he wanted to be a little bit more. Even when we first started dating, he thought he was going to be, he thought, okay, group reform, but maybe I'll be conservative. Like he knew he wanted to be a little bit more, but you know, he was like, what? I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have two sets of plates. I'm not going to do this stuff. But he was never, he wasn't, he, he, I think he sort of admired it in a way. He wasn't mean. He wasn't dismissive. When we had people over, he would come there often. And. Yeah, then we got married. I converted. That sounds like very anticlimactic. Now I'm like, I convert, you know, at, at the end of all of that. It took about three years from like aha moment of this is what I want to do to the moment of actual conversion, the actual, you know, beat in, all that. And now, and then after, shortly after we got married, we actually moved to England. And when we moved to England, he said, Okay, I think. You know, he's like, I'm in a new office. I have this moment where I can, you know, I can change myself. Um, Had he been
0: learning throughout this time himself? A little bit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. We went to, at the risk of like going too far into it, we went to a rabbi who was, gave him a pretty wide berth. Mm -hmm. So... Typically you yeah, you are supposed to, the spouse. And I think this is actually not an uncommon situation. I've heard of this happening before where this, the Jewish spouse is actually sure. the one who kind of lags behind for reasons that psychologically seem pretty understandable to me. Then when we moved to England, he he told his office he said he said, I'm I'm Shomer Shabbat now. And how was that? That was three five years ago, five years ago. Wow. So yeah, our family looks different than than I, I thought that it would.
0: How did his parents respond to that?
1: By and large, they are very supportive. Yeah. They're not high holiday Jews at all. So I think they have a lot of respect. You know, it's not that there's no awkwardness ever. It certainly comes up. But for the most part, they really do. They understand. They understand wanting Judaism to be a big part of your life. That part is not foreign to
0: them. Tell me a little bit about your, your career in parallel to all of this, you studied, I assume, journalism at Columbia.
1: I studied creative writing. And creative then, writing, yeah, yeah. and then
0: I saw online. What, this is one thing I did notice that you went to Goucher.
1: I did. I got my MFA there.
0: Okay, so I'm from Baltimore originally. So
1: yes.
0: I know. I know is. Goucher. I went to Hopkins for the uh, for my masters. Mm. But what was what kind of writing were you doing? And you've been, you know, into you know published in some pretty prominent outlets. Tell me a little bit about your writing and what kind of writing you you were you've been interested in and and what that career's been like
1: writing wise a majority of the time from like really the end of college until right before i turned 30 was really devoted to writing this one book which sounds like a little bit embarrassing that it like took quite that long but whatever some people are it takes a long time for some people that's fine i did publish articles here and there but this was i was very naive when i was in college i thought that if you wanted to be a writer that you, when you, when you leave college, then you just go live in like an attic in Paris and you just, you know, toil away in obscurity for like decades. (laughs) And this is like, you know, this is kind of like the internet. Obviously the internet was around at the time, but its prominence in the world of letters was I think kind of just amping up. So I didn't really know you could get a job at a publication and like rise the ranks that way. I had no idea. So the book is about anorexia, but specifically I, I kind of call it like the communicability of anorexia or the culture of anorexia, the way that when I was a teenager in the mid-90s, there was this glut of memoirs and made-for-TV movies about, you know, sad girl problems like Prozac Nation and a lot of, a lot of made-for-TV movies about eating disorders and self-harming behaviors and things like this. And the whole purpose of this project or this, you know, like societal project was to dissuade young girls like me um, from experimenting with these habits. So my thesis was that actually most of those things did the opposite, that they, especially for an illness like anorexia, which has this weird element that it exists, but not nearly to the same degree in other addictions and mental illnesses, but anorexia is, can be very competitive and can be, I mean, between... Anorexics, so it's like this idea that we're gonna like put all these anorexics in one place together, and then like force them all to eat. I mean, it's like a nightmare scenario, and it can also be a major source of pride for people who have it. That's it's not unconflicted pride. It's also a major source of despair and fear, and it's not all good. But it becomes like a foundational part of one's identity in a way that doesn't necessarily happen for, I mean, I would argue that now it, it sort of does for certain other diagnoses, but that's always been a hallmark of anorexia. So I think my thesis was that like a lot of these things, like a lot of um, Tracy Gold movies on Lifetime, that they were supposed to tell us how horrible this thing was, but what they actually did was show us in a different way, like sort of how romantic- Romanticizing. Yeah. yeah.
0: What's the name of your book that you wrote?
1: My book is called "How to Disappear
0: Completely,"
1: and it's um, you know a lot of these things they really belabored the ritualistic aspects of anorexia, and that for young girls, I mean, you'd be surprised. When I was when I was a preteen, mm-hmm. it was not uncommon for, for girls to try their hand at it, you know, and a lot of those things that was common knowledge, the things that anorexics did, and so you would say, oh, "Okay, well." I'll I'll give that a try. And um, so that was something that I worked on for a long, long long time. And it was, it was hard. It was a lot of like, it was very messy and it was all over the place for many years. And there was a lot of stuff about like, you know, me self-referencing things in other chapters and like wanting to turn the chronology inside out and like really, you know, avant-garde things that did not work at all. And it took a long time for me to kind of, streamline it and make it with a lot of help. So that's what I did. Towards the end of working on that, then I started to publish more widely essays and articles and things of that nature. I did and still do a lot of things that are about Judaism generally. And I also do things that are, I'm a pretty big generalist. So I do things, I think I mostly, I tell people I write about like religion, literature, and medicine.
0: What do you enjoy about writing?
1: Not that much. (laughs) Um, um, Like a real writer. Gosh, it's hard. Yeah. I like that feeling you get when you know you're describing something well. And I like being able to like land the right word or the right phrase. You know, there's a sense of satisfaction in that. And I like having an idea and letting it take shape and feeling like it's taking shape. But if I'm being honest, you know, not to sound, I don't like it when writers like bemoan how horrible writing is, but a lot of the time it's hard. It feels like a hard slog and it feels like I'm, you know, like I'm actually in that flow zone or whatever, like 10% of the time.
0: Right. Yeah. What, what are you proudest of? What piece would you say your essay that you've outside of your book that you've been able to publish?
1: There are a few things, but I'm just going to, I'm going to pick one. Because I think it's sort of also relevant to this conversation. I wrote a very long fair warning to anybody who decides to go and look it up. I wrote a very long piece about Amish converts, um, in which I also like talk a little bit about my own experience, but um, but about people who convert or who become Amish as adults. I'm pretty proud of that, especially because like as you can imagine, it's not that easy to do like research. It takes a little bit of effort to track down.
0: To get in there. You
1: know, to get in there, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I'm a... They don't even have
0: electricity. You can't email them, you know.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of this, you're cold calling or, you know, sometimes they have phones and sometimes they don't. And I liked being able to go into another culture and, and feel like I'm, you know, learning about it. Yeah, I thought it, I, it was very interesting. That's obviously a very difficult... Judaism is not a walk in the park converting to Judaism, but uh, I think the Amish got a speed there.
0: That's pretty uh, cool. Where was yeah. that published?
1: It was like a joint project between a publication called Atlas Obscura and Long Reads, which is, um, as the name says, devoted to longer form writing. So from a Jewish perspective, people like to always point to, I did um, a review of Shulam Dean's book back when that was published and his was kind of, if I can, re- if I remember correctly, a sort of when the memoirs about leaving Orthodoxy were becoming big, his was sort of one of the later ones to come out of Deborah Feldman's was first. And then, and then if you she got
0: that. the movie out of it
1: and she got the movie,
0: right. She's she she's, well, hers was more sensationalistic. So
1: right. Yeah. His was probably uh, too flattering was, for a movie. Yeah. His is a little too literary, I would say, uh, yeah. you know, you've got to make it a little more pat to get to Netflix. I think anyway. Um, and that was, I am actually, you know, I don't reread stuff very often, but that is, um, when I was on David Fashevkin's uh, podcast, he very helpfully slash embarrassingly reread portions of it. And, um, and I was like, oh, this actually isn't terrible. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think from, from um, Jewish topics, that one is sort of one of my...
0: So I want to I sort of bring it to a close by asking yeah. you about your experience as a convert now that you've gone through that process yeah. and, in a, sort of an unconventional way, I would say. Having yeah. taken a long time, years and years and years, and then had, had this Jewish boyfriend, but you know you kind of schlepped him along in, in a way. So, yeah. but what's at the end of the day in the final analysis, what's been your experience? Obviously there's a mitzvah in the Torah to welcome the proselyte, which is a fancy word for convert. And yeah. uh, there was, you know, but at the same time, it's a, uh, can be an insular community. And sometimes people in the community or segments thereof can uh, mm-hmm. perhaps not live up to that mandate fully. And so there might be a sense of otherness that some converts might feel. So, I want to know what your experience has been. A and B. You know, what are you doing? You know, with your conversion experience, are you working on any projects or any writing, or anything that relates to that particular aspect of who you are?
1: Yeah, the first question is a great question. You know, I think both my husband and I—I I should just speak for myself—but we talk about this a lot. And, and I, when I was on David Byshevkin's podcast, he said something like, oh, now that, you've, now that the work of assimilation is done. And I think we do not feel that way at all. I mean, you have to think, like, we were adults when we became observant. So a vast majority of our social circles and family, you know, most people from our lives prior to this are secular. I'm sure they think that we're, we went insane, you know. But I always say, you don't know. I mean, they don't. You don't. You don't see what I see. You know, you. I only see the ways in which I will never get to the place that those around me. It's all relative. Are, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, there's that. What is that joke? Like, everyone to the right of me is a fanatic.
0: is a heretic. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. And that's um, and that's hard. I'm not going to lie. That that's hard. I wish that I could develop the fluency that people my own age who grew up from or who had that, you know, that education have. And I just, I'm not sure that I'll ever get there. And I do feel maybe I could if I had had many years, you know, but our son was born, I think we had been married like a year and a half. So once you have little kids and you're working and then, you know, you're scrounging for time all the time. So the time, especially now, I mean, forget it now we feel nervous. We feel nervous that we'll never, we'll never be up to snuff. Our kids are going to go to school and we won't be able to help them You know, ba- with basic things. Well, they'll
0: help you eventually.
1: They can <laughs> help us. Yeah. Um, and then they'll be a little
0: embarrassed of you and yeah, everything, totally. but they won't ever appreciate what you actually went through to get to this point, which is totally. one of the so, great ironies and paradoxes. But
1: yeah, I do feel sometimes that people, if they notice that I'm doing something that's not up to their standards or not, they don't think is right, they can sometimes, I've had instances where people have been rude to me for something like, for something like that. I've never experienced what, you know, if somebody is not, could not pass, you know, somebody who comes from a different ethnicity, I mean, I know I've heard that sometimes they can face a lot of, right. So I I think, I like to think uh, I read an Last year, when Halloween was coming up, and our our street is a very big Halloween street, and our child is sort of old enough now to be like, "Wait a second! Why are all these people getting candy, and I'm not getting candy?" You know. And I read this really great piece. I think it was on the OU about Avraham's position as a a a, Toshav, You know, like as I am both a resident and an alien, and I sort of feel that way about the world and about the Jewish world. Mm. That I am a part of it, but I'm also outside of it, and in some ways, there's a lot of freedom that comes from being there, but there's also a lot of a lot of struggle and and always kind of feeling like not good enough. Or I try not to think about it too much because I just feel that everybody has, if they don't have that struggle, then I'm sure they have some sort of analogous one. Now, in terms of working on something that relates to conversion, I have like touched on it in works in work before, like a lot of different pieces that's come up in the Shalitine piece and in the Amish piece. And I'm currently trying to do something that's more book length, hopefully focusing on millennial and Gen Z. So basically anybody like my age and younger, specifically women converts, because women statistically make up there are more female converts. And I think this is true across religious spectrum, that in, in many religions, that's the case.
0: not surprised.
1: And yes, right? It makes sense. Something intuitive. There's something intuitively sensible about that. But at the same time, from an outsider's perspective, you kind of have more... I mean, I'm not saying that I agree with this, but I'm saying that a, se- a secular person might think, well, a woman would have more to lose
0: by doing that. Right. By, Going by to this find- restrictive, repressive, yeah, environment, right?
1: Right. Or you know, or becoming or in, in any sort of conservative expression of a religion that they would have more to lose, that their the expectations become more concrete. Now, you could make a lot of arguments as to why dominant fourth wave feminist corporate American culture doesn't exactly <laughs> provide oodles more opportunity than that. But I think that that's the, that would be the assumption. So sure. I'm sort of looking at that population, which I am a part of, and I want to write something about you know why? What drives people to do this? How does it work out for them? Um, so you know, if anybody knows of anyone who is in that demographic and wouldn't mind letting, okay, a- we're gonna
0: have to we're gonna have to funnel yeah. the converts your way. I mean, right? I'm I very want-
1: nice. I'm very nice. <laughs> I just want to follow you around for like three years. It's okay. It's do you right. feel like
0: <laughs> there there might be those in that situation that are going to be are going to be resistant because they don't want to be identified as such or you know pigeonholed as converts. I've, I've encountered that before. People just want to kind of fit in and disappear yeah. into the community oh and my not gosh. be highlighted.
1: I remember, I mean, years ago, I wrote a piece about, if I say it, then it might, I mean, nobody, I'm assuming no one would have the time to do this, but then again, people ferret out a lot of weird stuff online. So I wrote a piece <laughs> that took place in Borough Park and somebody that I interviewed was a convert and lived in that community. And I was, at the time, I was very sensitive to making sure that religious people didn't feel that I was a So I sent her a quote that she had said to me. They said, you know, she doesn't want to be, I don't want to be identified as a convert. And I remember this was a long time ago, so I didn't really know at the time why, but I remember saying, why? That's, but you did, that's so amazing. You yep. changed your whole life. You, you did something that you, you know, you felt so strongly in your heart that you put in all this effort. Why wouldn't you be so excited and proud about that? to be honest, like I'm still not sure. <laughs> I yeah. get it. I know why, but uh, still a part of me is like, that makes you like a thousand times more interest, not more interesting, but that just, that just makes you amazing in my mind. So I, if I would love it, if people were excited to share that part of themselves, yeah, I think,
0: I mean, I think some people psychologically are more comfortable standing out, obviously from your yeah. story, you're a kind of person who's, you know, you've always, it seems like always been a bit of an iconoclast and willing to go cut against the grain and kind of, you know, be, be that unique person. And other people want to blend into the community and just be a part of that and, and meld their identity in that way, which, which is also okay. We do live in a a very communitarian society and to the degree that bias, so to speak against converts, you could also understand why people would want to hide that, that part of their identity.
1: First of all, I will say in case anybody was listening, you could use a pseudonym, but, um, um, but I, I've also been in the position where people have asked very prying questions right. after learning in in front of other people
0: at a Shabbat table. Is this at is a the Shabbat table? Cliche I mean, sort of. Not,
1: it makes me it makes me upset to think about it now. The way I mean, people who really should have known better. Um,
0: so Kelsey, and, uh, yeah. what's your life story? Why'd you convert? And pass the gefilte fish. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. I mean, just like, kind of like belaboring it. I'm right. like, I'm just here to eat, dude. You yeah, know, like, leave me alone. Really, like, <laughs> I'm like. What do you think about when you fall asleep at night, sir? Right. Um, exactly. So, yeah, right. Right I think yeah. I I get that. I mean, I think there's the balance, like everything in life, I'm sure there's a the balance to be struck. There's a I think I think there's a way to talk about it without declaring it open season on your your innermost feelings and thoughts and like, experiences. But I think
0: <laughs> well, I think, I think, I think you if you're say. doing a book, which is a project that, you know, that can kind of qualify as the right environment for that. Do you have a uh, like a publisher or anything lined up for this yet? Or I don't have kinda... a public.
1: No, no, I have to write the proposal. So
0: it takes a long
1: time to take, to find. Sometimes people are really willing, but for various reasons, they're not the right person for the story. And sometimes people with like the best stories aren't. It just takes a long time to find the right kind of person. You know, they need to be like the, the uh, like just exhibitionist enough to want to talk about themselves. But not so exhibitionist that they've already written their own memoir, like that kind of, <laughs> that kind of balance. And, and, uh, um, okay, we got to put yeah.
0: out the call for the moderately exhibitionist convert. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to, to, yes, send us an email. Um, yeah. <laughs> Kelsey, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, uh, it's so fascinating. I mean, I, what's amazing about it is that I feel like almost each one of the slices of your life is kind of its own chapter in a way or its own really fascinating topic when you talk about the conversion story, and the eating disorder piece of things, and the writing career, and all of that. It's, it's really all these different aspects folded into one really fantastic you know, life story. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to share it with us. I won't ask you it at a Shabbat table, but I'm glad you're able to do it on our podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, Kelsey, this is a sanctions environment. This is sanctions.
0: <laughs> there we go. Kelsey, tell people, is there anywhere that people can find you online if they want to access your writings, or they do want to reach out to you about this newest project or any of that?
1: Yeah. So I have a website, which is Kelseyoskowitz.com. So it's Love it. easy. I'm pretty Googleable. I have no Twitter. I have no Facebook. Wow. I have no anything like that. So if you just- You're the only on Instagram. Kind of the, I, okay. you know, the only, I know. My husband has that kind of, he's only on Instagram, but he doesn't really,
0: you know. No but, social, you're social media free.
1: I am social media free. Well, I work uh, with
0: college kids. A lot of the college kids, they have what's called a Finsta which is a fake Instagram where they do all their actual like stuff that their parents can't see. So uh, maybe Kelsey, you have one of those and, you
1: know. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. You'll have to, you'll have not, to be a really good internet snooze to find that. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So that's how you could do it. There's a contact form and then you can just write in.
0: Fantastic. Kelsey Osgood, amazing story, a convert, a survivor of eating disorders and a person who has done a tremendous amount to educate the broader world about that and a prolific writer Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews you should know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.